1: chapter 6 verses 17 to 26 it starts on page 705 of your um, pew bible and we get to turn the page to 706 blessings and woes he went down with them and stood on a level place a large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil, because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets.
0: Well, good morning. Great to see everyone this morning, all of you who are in the sanctuary and those who are joining us on the live stream. Great to have you with us. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed throughout life, and I think that you have probably noticed this as well, is that no one likes to be left out. It doesn't feel very good. And oftentimes it doesn't even matter why you're being excluded uh, because we all have a desire to fit in. And so in order to fit in, oftentimes we will go along with what everyone else is doing just so we won't stand out, even if we have some reservations about it. This was actually uh, shown to be true scientifically back in the 1950s when Solomon Ash of Swarthmore College, or Swarthmore College, Um, did an experiment. And you might have heard about this experiment before. He gathered 123 college students to be a part of a study that he called a vision test. And the test was really very simple. He took those 123 and divided them into groups of five to seven people. And they were shown a series of 18 cards that looked something like this. And uh, there were lines, and they had to say which line, A, B, or C, was equal to the one on the left-hand side. So it seems like a pretty simple, uh, pretty simple experiment, right? Well... Um they were, uh, they were divided also into groups of where uh, five or six of them were a part of the accomplices of the program. In other words, they were given some instructions. They were told what was going on with the experiment. And they were told that for 12 of the 18 to give the correct answer, but for six of the 18 to give deliberately the wrong answer. And, the, and what they wanted to do was, was the first one gave the wrong answer, the rest of them would fall in line and also. Give the wrong answer, and then the person who was actually the subject of the experiment was always went last or second to last, and they could give whatever answer they wanted and the What he found kind of surprised him, although it might not surprise you very much uh, that Only 24% of the contestants or the participants did not conform in any of the trials. So only a quarter of them. 75% conformed at least once, and 5% of the people who participated in it conformed every single time, even to answers that they knew were wrong. Okay? That is the power of conformity. And the study. There wasn't even didn't even have any like direct pressure from people. There was no pressure to to perform. It was all in their mind, and so you can imagine how much how much more difficult it can be to stand out when there are actual consequences of behaving differently. Now, today we're going to look at a passage that initially looks like it's about money, and actually it kind of is, but it's really about conformity. We call the passage the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are pretty well known, but I would say that oftentimes we don't take them seriously, or at least don't take them seriously enough. But before we start to get into the content of the Beatitudes, let's set the scene a little bit for a minute. Early in the chapter, Jesus got into trouble because he was walking through the grain fields with his disciples and he started picking the heads of grain because he was hungry and started eating them. And the Pharisees saw him do this. And the problem with it was that he was doing this on the Sabbath. And this was a direct violation of the traditions of the Pharisees. And we learned last week how much the traditions meant to the Pharisees. And so there was a bit of a kerfluffle about that. Jesus gets through that. And then later on in the day, Jesus goes up on the mountainside to pray. And this is something that we see all over the book of Luke. And like many other things, there's a pattern to Jesus' ministry. He goes away to pray, and then he comes back and he ministers. Uh, And this is, for instance, what Jesus did in the desert when he went and uh, fasted for 40 days, was tested by Satan. And what does it say in Luke 4.14 when he came back? He came back to Galilee full of the Holy Spirit. Luke also mentions later in Luke 5.16 that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And then when he got done, he would go down and start to minister. And so right before our passage today, that's exactly what Jesus did. Right before his first extended sermon, Jesus went away and he prayed for the whole night, getting fueled up for the ministry that awaited him. All right, so let me just stop there for a minute. And uh, because I think there's even a moment of application there. Because if Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, needed to spend time in lonely places in prayer in order to carry out the work he had to do, how important do you think it is that we do the same thing? Would you say it's essential, it's critical? I mean, if you're someone who wants to have greater faith, who wants to live more consistently like Jesus, to be more effective in reaching out to your neighbors, then that might be the place to start. If Jesus needed to do it, then so do we. Well, Jesus, it says, came down the mountainside, and he began to minister to people. And people from all around the place were coming to see him. And Luke lists a number of different places. He lists Judea, which was kind of the region around there. Uh, And then people also came from Jerusalem, which was the city. And they came from the city to outstate uh, Judea. That's kind of how they would have thought about it. And, uh, And Luke even says that people came from Tyre and Sidon. And if people were coming from Tyre and Sidon, they were most likely Gentiles, so not even Jewish, and it was about 100 miles away. So people were coming from all over the place. It was Jews, it was Gentiles. People were coming to to see Jesus. Word was getting around, not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, even 100 miles away. And the question is, why were they coming? Well, we see it in verse 18. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Right, so Luke mentions there are three reasons why people came to see Jesus. First, they came to hear him. Right, I, I know sometimes we question the motivation of people who go. And, and actually sometimes Jesus even questioned the motivation of people who came and followed him around. And just saying, oh, you just came to see the fireworks. You just came to see the miracles. But in this case, people came because they actually wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And there was something that was powerful and challenging and life-giving about what he was teaching. And they were hungry to hear the word of God. And so that's the first reason why they were there. The second is that they, be, they came to be healed of their diseases, right? They lived in a world where there weren't a lot of doctors, and the doctors that actually were there were not particularly effective, often couldn't do a whole lot for them. And so for a lot of people, this was their last resort. This was the place where they could go to actually find some, some healing, to he, be healed of the things that they were struggling with. And the third reason that they were coming was uh, that people were troubled by impure spirits came to be cured or actually released. That word can mean kind of both of those things. Uh, it's, it can simply refer to sickness, but since Luke already mentioned sickness, it probably refers to something like demon possession. They came to be freed from, from impure spirits. Okay? Now, of course, what's happening here is Jesus is just doing what he said he came to do. I mean, why in the world would so many people from all over the place come and listen to a local rabbi from a small town? It's not just because he was a good teacher, although he was that. It's because there was some real power there, and people recognized that. In fact, he's demonstrating what he told them that he would do when he walked into the synagogue just a few chapters earlier in chapter 4 and read from the scroll of Isaiah and said that his ministry was about physical and spiritual release from oppression. And he was doing that. He was showing that he had power over the diabolical forces that kept people enslaved. And he freed them from whatever held them back. And it was these miraculous signs that he did that gave credibility to the teaching that he was doing, not just about the world, but about himself as the Messiah. Now, one thing I want you to recognize here is that all throughout the book of Luke, Jesus' ministry is characterized by two things, word and deed. Word and deed. Okay, He teaches and he heals. He casts out demons and then he tells a parable. And those two things are connected, and they are also a model for how we are to go about our ministry as the community of Jesus. We do good deeds, and we bear witness to Jesus. We do good deeds in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we witness to where that power is coming from. And both of those things are indispensable parts of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, both word and deed. And so Jesus gains a large crowd, and they're following him all over the place. And then he takes time to teach, and this is what we call the Beatitudes. Now, whenever you read a teaching of Jesus, especially one that can be a bit challenging, like the one that we see today, one thing that's helpful is to understand who Jesus is talking to. And in this case, we might say in the scene that there are three groups of people there. The first is Jesus' inner group of his 12 disciples, and we see them listed right in the uh, verses right before this page uh, before this uh, passage in verses twelve through sixteen, okay so you have those twelve, and then you have the larger group of disciples. These are people who have committed to follow Jesus, uh, are not part of the inner circle of the twelve, but they 're ones who have been following him around and uh, and so they 're they're that group as well and then finally, you have the crowds okay these are people who are. Interested in Jesus' ministry. Maybe they're there for the fireworks. Maybe there are people who are just kind of uh, bystanders. They're considering following him, but they need to hear more. Uh, We might even include people like some of the Pharisees that we've read about earlier in in that group, that they're maybe not necessarily there because they want to follow Jesus, but they're there to kind of hear him and see him and try to trip him up. Okay? And, And those are the three groups that are there at the time. Now, notice in verse 20, Though, who Jesus is talking to. He says, it says, looking at his disciples. Looking at his disciples. So he turns his attention to a very particular group of people. Now, we don't know for sure, but it seems like he's talking to all of his disciples. So probably those first two groups, not just the 12 here. The crowd is looking on, and Jesus is okay with them hearing it. Okay, but they're just kind of looking on. He's talking to his disciples, And and it's really important to recognize this, because if we don't, it might cause us to misunderstand some of what Jesus is saying, and actually to be a little bit confused by it, okay? So, here's how he begins.
1: "'Blessed
0: are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh.'" Right now, again, one thing that I want you to recognize is is this is something that's wholly consistent with Luke's testimony all the way through his gospel. It started with Mary's song in chapter 1 that we looked at. Did we look at that on Christmas Eve or during Advent sometime? Uh, Where where she said this in in chapter 1, verse 52. God has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Do you notice some of those same themes in the Beatitudes? I think so. And then it continued in chapter 4, again, when Jesus walked into the synagogue, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah about the ministry of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a spiritual connection there and an economic uh, reversal that happens, uh, one that comes with the coming of the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those whose lives are characterized by weeping because of the situation that you find yourself in. Blessed means good news. Right? We've heard that before, right? The gospel. Good news, there's been a change in your status. Okay? But here's the problem. Is that we know that when you come to Jesus, you don't all of a sudden get out of poverty. You don't all of a sudden become rich. And so, then what changes so that poor people feel blessed when they come to Jesus? Well, I think the answer comes in understanding how Jesus looked at the world. You see, anytime Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, he's actually comparing it to the kingdoms of this world. And each of the kingdoms has a set of values and a set of beliefs. For instance, in the kingdoms of this world, wealth and power are of equal value and importance. In fact, the prevailing notion at that time was that if you were wealthy and comfortable, it was a sign of God's blessing. Okay? That the reason that you were wealthy is because you were also righteous. It was just assumed to be true. And that's a value of the kingdom of this world. And not only that, but in the kingdoms of this world, the people in power expect those under them to serve them. And so Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 22, the kings of this world lord it over them. In other words, they expect the poor masses to serve them because they believe that there is something more substantial, something more important about them. And this is how the world works. And I probably don't have to work to come up with illustrations to, to show this to you guys. You know that this is how it works. But Jesus, when he teaches about his kingdom, he says, my kingdom doesn't work that way because wealth and worldly power are irrelevant as status markers in the kingdom of God. They don't indicate anything about a person's relationship with God. In fact, a little bit later in this passage, Jesus warns wealthy people of the dangers of wealth and status. In the kingdom of God, Jesus says, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. So you see this reversal. You see this upside downness of the kingdom. Right now, Jesus is not saying that people are righteous just because they are poor. Uh, the poor people there are poor people who are righteous, just like there are rich people who are righteous, there are poor people who are scoundrels, just like there are rich people who are scoundrels. in the kingdoms of this world, though, high uh, social and economic status are signs of god 's blessing, but in the kingdom of God they 're irrelevant. In fact, knowing that some people are overlooked and marginalized in this world, scripture says that God actually pays special attention. And advocates for the poor. And so when you boil it all down. Jesus isn't saying that people are blessed because they are poor. The poor are blessed because Jesus has formed a kingdom and a community. Where social and economic status do not make you right with God. But here's where paying attention, uh, why paying attention to who Jesus is talking about can help us to understand the passage better. Because in verse 22, there's something a little bit strange. It seems like he almost changes the subject there. Where he says this, he says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. And then get this line, because of the Son of Man. Now remember, this is very early in Jesus' ministry. Uh, As far as we know, uh, even with the disciples, the people standing around here, this is the first time Jesus had all of his disciples in one place and he was teaching them. And what he has to say to them is completely contrary to everything that they had been taught in the past. And so he's letting them know right at the beginning what they're getting themselves into. If you're going to be my disciples, then you have to remember this. These are the values of the kingdom. That when they follow Jesus, they become a part of a new kingdom and a new community. And this kingdom and community happens to be good news for the poor and the marginalized. But it's not good news because when you come to Jesus, you'll suddenly become rich and popular. It's good news Because you get to be a part of Jesus' community. But of course, being a part of Jesus' community means that we live by the values of Jesus' community. And those values are in opposition to the values of the kingdom of this world. And so when you come into contact with people who live by different values, don't be surprised when you start to get some pushback. They might hate you. They might exclude you. They might insult you. They might even reject you and call you evil. Why? Because of the Son of Man. You don't live by their values. This is why I think Christians ought to be very mindful of how we are involved in the political process. That's not to say that we shouldn't be involved in politics. If if that's your thing, then I say have, have at it. But secular politics are based on the values of the kingdom of this world. And so, as Christians, we're going to be excluded by some people because we believe that biblical revelation is real and that there's a moral order to the world. And we're going to be excluded by others because of the incredible passion that we see that God has in the Bible on the poor and the marginalized. The people of the world should look at us just a little bit confused, a bit sideways, because we don't fit into their category. And we don't fit into their clubs because we answer to someone else that also doesn't fit into their club. And so Jesus says, blessed are you when you don't fit all other people's expectations. And all they know to do is exclude you and reject you. Why? Well, Jesus says, because that's how the world has always treated people who are faithful to God. Well, Luke's account of the Beatitudes is a little bit different than Matthew's. You maybe have noticed that if you're familiar with Matthew's. Uh, Matthew tends to spiritualize things. Luke's are more social and economic, and they seem to be a little bit more this worldly than Matthew. And so a lot of people have the question, well, why do they differ? Are they disagreeing with each other? Are they contradictory? And And I think there could be a couple of reasons why Matthew's Beatitudes are different than Luke's. Uh, one reason could be that Matthew and Luke, while they're faithfully recording what Jesus said, they're just emphasizing different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Both of them are, uh, are speaking to different audiences, and it's not uncommon uh, to, to do something like that. Um, it's also possible it, that Matthew and Luke are actually talking about two different sermons. That that are happening. Okay, uh, for instance, it's not unusual for a pastor to preach the same message, but to change it, to tweak it just a little bit, depending on the audience that he's preaching to. I've preached messages here and in Sierra Leone, and they were the same, but they were different. And so a lot of people say this might be what was happening here. It seems to be the setting was a little different. Luke says that he was up on a hill, and, or Luke says he was on a plane, and Matthew says he was up on a hill. So it could be that. Now, I don't really know what the answer is, but personally, I'm actually not too bothered by the differences uh, because I don't think they really contradict each other. I think there's maybe just a little difference in e- emphasis. Okay, but the biggest difference between the two accounts is that Luke doesn't just speak about blessings. He adds some corresponding woes. They're kind of harsh, actually. Look in verse 24. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And as I read this, I was thinking, whoa, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about here, right? Now, here's the thing. If you read them out of context, you might get the sense that anyone who has money, who has some wealth, is going to hell in a handbasket. Jesus actually sounds a little bit Marxist here, right? The poor rising up against the rich, at least until you understand what he's actually saying. Because he's not talking about a human revolution. He's not talking about class warfare. He's talking about what God is doing to turn things upside down in this world. You see, Jesus is driving home a theme that's present all throughout Scripture. That money and status are unique traps or barriers to dependence on God. I mean, we see wealth as a sign of God's blessing. But Jesus, and really the rest of the New Testament, views it as a temptation that we need to handle very, very carefully. And that's because money and fame and popularity have a tendency to go to our head. And once we have it, we can get this sense of self-importance. And when we have it, and it seems like slowly we start to take on the values of the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus actually illustrates this point later on in, in Luke chapter 18. I don't remember if we're going to look at this one specifically. But Jesus is having a conversation with what Luke calls a certain ruler. We call him the rich young ruler, or the rich young man. And the man comes to Jesus, and I think he's sincere. He says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, follow the Ten Commandments, basically, and the guy responds, well, that's easy. I've done that all my life. I've been a good Jewish guy. I've been going to synagogue. I've been doing all the Ten Commandments all my life. So I guess I've got it made. And then, of course, Jesus starts meddling again. Jesus follows up with this. Well, then, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And what happens? Well, Luke reports it. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus responds to him by saying how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Is this, is this bugging you a little bit? Now what he was talking about is the reality that the better things go for us in the kingdom of this world, the more tempted we are to focus on it. And the danger that Jesus is talking about is, is the more that this life looks like heaven for you, the less you need heaven in the future. It's easy to get caught up in it. Because when we are fortunate enough to have comfort and popularity in this life, then we tend to believe that we've created it for ourselves. And then we want more. And so then we start to focus on making this heaven better for ourselves, and we tend to forget that everything that we have is only by the grace of God. And that's why Jesus says, well, you've already received your comfort. And I've seen this play out many times over the course of my years of ministry. People start out with humble beginnings and they really want to serve God. They're dedicated to God and to the church and they're eager to learn and grow and to reach out to people. Then they get a good job And they start making money and they get a house and pretty soon that house becomes their focus and their passion for Jesus, for some reason, just starts to wane a little bit. And I've actually even seen it die because of it. Now, can rich people be saved? You better believe it. But it takes a little bit different response from us. And that's the thing, I would include us in that category of rich. I mean, the average middle-class person today lives at a level of ease and comfort that even rich people in Jesus' day did not live with. And that's why John Wesley's attitude toward money was this. And we, I think we ought to pay attention to what he had to say. He says, "'Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart.'" All right, so how do we wrap this up today? Well, the first thing is, is that I think we need to realize that when Jesus was addressing his disciples, he was actually giving his vision for the church, the the community that he was creating to carry on his ministry. I mean, that's what the disciples were, right? He was building this community and he was setting the values of that community in place right at the very beginning. And it was a community that we see was radically egalitarian, where rich and poor were seen as equals. And they did everything that they could to take care of each other. And and in fact, Luke later on in his second volume, what we call the book of Acts, He describes how the early church held this value. In a couple of different places, he's giving uh, overviews of what the early church was like. And he says in in Acts 2.44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And then he mentions it again of all the things that they did in in Acts chapter 4, where he says, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, do we need to do everything the way they did? I don't think so. I'm, I'm, you know, application for this is not asking you to sell everything you have and join our commune, all right, in case you were worried about that. But I do think that we need to take what Jesus says seriously and figure out how can we live both as individuals and as a community live in a way that is faithful to that vision that he has for his people. And what does it mean? Well, I think it means that we have to uh, cultivate a culture of generosity in, in all the families of the church, because we're not focused on making our lives more comfortable here on earth, but we're storing up treasures in heaven. It means that we don't give reluctantly to the poor, but that we are actively looking for opportunities to do so. It means that we don't give preferential treatment or greater decision making power to the wealthy or the big givers in the church. I have a friend who pastors a wealthy church, and a number of times people have made subtle hints and sometimes have said directly to him that they would withhold their tithe if they didn't get what they wanted. This is not a value of the kingdom of God. It means that we value the wisdom and contributions of our financially poor members as much as we do our rich members. It means that we need to be a church community that reminds people that this world is not all there is. That there's an age to come where things, things will be different. That there will be no poverty or sickness or sadness. There won't be people taking advantage of others or, or people on the outside looking in. And regardless of what happens in this life, as people of the community of Jesus, we have that life, that world to look forward to in the end. And above all, we need to be a community of people who bears witness to that new reality in both word and deed, just like Jesus. At the beginning, I said that the message was about conformity. And I think that's true. Because there are values of this world, that most people around you, when you go about your business, you go to work, if you watch TV, you'll see those values all over the place. And it oftentimes feel, doesn't feel very good to be left out. It doesn't feel very good to be on the outside looking in when everybody else is living a certain way. Sometimes it's hard to be different. But that's why it's so important to know that Jesus was talking about a community that lives differently differently. A community where, sure, we're on the inside, but we invite everyone to be on the inside. That it's equal opportunity. That God invites everyone, no matter their past, their background, their ethnicity, where they're from, any of that kind of stuff. Doesn't matter. That God invites us all to the kingdom. And we are the people of that community. That's the business that we need to be about and the values that we ought to be living by. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And again, a word that, that's challenging to us. Um, I, maybe a lot of us don't think of ourselves as rich, but I think in reality we very much are. Because so much of our lives are, are dedicated to comfort are dedicated to ease of life or even accumulation, bigger and better. and, And oftentimes we think that we're more important because of that. But God, I pray that we would take seriously your call to us as individual believers, as followers of Jesus. That your community, in your community, That our social status, that our popularity, all of that are just irrelevant. What matters is that we're with you, that we've made that decision to follow you. And Lord, I pray that that wouldn't just be lip service from us, but that each day we would seek and we would strive to be more and more like you, to take on your values, not just in our minds but also in our actions and in our hearts, the way we see the world. God, may we be more and more conformed to your image, to the image of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.